Welcome to Heroic Hearts Podcast, where we will explore the heroic journeys of St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese of Lisieux to heal, inspire, and re-enchant our own hearts. Hello and greetings to all our Heroic Hearts listeners. This is Amy Chase, and I'm here with Walter. Hey, Walter. Hi, Amy. How are you doing? Oh, so good. Walter, we are getting near the end of our journey. Can you believe this? I know with uh, trepidation and uh, a sense of mixed emotions, joy yet trepidation. Definitely. It's uh, it's a strange feeling, but I am so glad to be here with you and our listeners once again, because we do have a lot of stuff to talk about today. Well, it's it's uh, it maybe isn't the greatest story ever told, but it's among the greatest stories ever told. And it's Maybe it's the second greatest it's, story. Yeah, I think I think Twain, <laughs> I, I would go with Twain and, and say it's probably the second greatest story <laughs> ever told. So, okay. Well, um, before we get to our enchanting moments, I do have a couple of announcements. And I'm just going to repeat what we said last week about our new location on Substack. So Substack, the newsletter platform, and also a podcasting platform, which we're going to transition to in the future. But for now, now we do want to invite all of our listeners to go and sign up, subscribe to the site so that you can get all of the episodes delivered to your inbox, plus any other bonus um, material that we want to put out. And you can find us at heroichearts.substack.com, which is the, um, which is our, the new site. Um, But our old site also still redirects. So heroic-hearts.com will take you there where you can subscribe and share with your friends and um, get all the latest from. And, and when you see how wonderful it looks, thank Amy. <laughs> Don't thank me because you did all the work. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, it is a work in progress, but what's nice about it is that it's such an easy platform to use and to create content in, and we're just really excited about it. Awesome. All right. Well, um, let's let's start with our prayer and then we'll do our enchanting moments. Okay. Amy, you want to lead us in the prayer? Okay, sure. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. O sacred heart of Jesus, form in us missionary hearts, hearts that burn to spread your faith, heroic hearts of the cross, wanting always and everywhere to bear witness to you. Make us ready to suffer to show our love. And like our sisters, St. Joan of Arc and St. Therese, grant us the desire to conquer for you all the hearts of the universe. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Amy. Oh, certainly. Well, Walter, give us an enchanting moment this week. Well, I had any of a number, but I one that one that came to mind was um, we have a shrine not far from us uh, for Our Lady of La Salette, oh. and we actually have uh, Our Lady of La Salette missionaries who mm-hmm. who stay there, and it's it's very beautiful. It's tucked away. Uh, it's not something that you just stumble upon. You have to like know it's there and go to it. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And they have a beautiful chapel. It's a small chapel and fairly simple, but it's very beautiful. And um, they the grounds are amazing. So there's this huge, I don't know how many acres, but this hu- huge amount of, of land that's just gorgeous. And there's a hill and you can walk up the hill to a beautiful statue of Our Lady of La Salette with the children. And then you can go down and walk through the fields and visit different little grottos of uh, any of them. And then there's another hill toward the back that has the, uh, the crucifixion scene, oh, the life, so nice. life, 
life-size crucifix with the thieves on either side. And so it, that, you know, we've been there before, but uh, even though it's even though it's relatively close, we don't always get there as much as we want. So we went over there. We were able to go to confession. Um, you know, they have confession on a daily basis. So it was truly an enchanting moment. And I encourage anyone that's uh, in the southern Wisconsin area to, to make that trip to Our Lady of La Salette. Absolutely gorgeous grounds. And it will definitely enchant you and it will raise your mind to more transcendent thinking for sure. Wonderful. Well, we will put in the show notes links to uh, the Shrine's website. I'm sure they have one so that anyone who's interested in visiting can find out more. They, they do. And they have the schedule of masses and confession times and the whole thing. Wonderful. Well, my my enchanting moment was this morning today. <laughs> so I have been attempting to do the devotion of first Fridays. So um, going to mass um, the first Friday of the month for nine Fridays in a row. And that was a, um, a devotion that was revealed to, I want to say it was St. Mary Margaret Alacoque, but I'll have to- Yeah, I, I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Walter, I started this in January of 2020. I resolved it was my it was my New Year's <laughs> resolution that I was going to do the first Friday's devotion, and I couldn't have picked a worse time to start it because, of course, <laughs> two months later, uh, COVID happened and um, the churches were shut down. And so I have I've struggled a lot. I, I restarted it probably three times at least um, during you know all those uh, all all that time, and uh, finally finished today, and just had such a, a sense of consolation. And, uh, and, and that, that transcendence that comes from knowing that I persevered with grace to complete, you know, to complete this, um, this effort. And so I'm just, I'm just really happy. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, very amazing. And it's such a beautiful devotion. And I'm sort of kind of hiding my eyes and head a little bit here because I feel uh, ashamed because it's been too long since I've done first Friday. And I hate to admit it, it's been too long. I've really done my first uh, uh, Saturdays, done the the five. So I will make a public confession that I need to get on the ball on that. And you've reminded me of that, Amy. So a beautiful enchanting moment. And I feel somewhat properly shamed into getting my act together and doing that. Well, that's certainly not my intention to make anyone (laughs) feel bad. But I will say that for myself, I probably needed to, I, I probably needed that lesson in perseverance um, to, to really uh, experience the, the fruits of this devotion. If I had just knocked it out in the first nine months and not had to struggle to make it happen, because I really did struggle through all those months of, of COVID quarantine, you know, trying to find um, a, a priest and, and make sure that I could attend mass. And then, you know, then there was a time when I, when I just couldn't do it and, you know, start over and then you know, I'm trucking along and then I get COVID and then, you know, you start over like to have to do that. Now uh, it's so much more meaningful. And I think it will be a devotion that I will just want to continue after having worked so hard to. Well, it's, it's a powerful, it. it's a powerful thing because to me, it always showed me it's, it sounds like it's not that hard, right? Like first <laughs> yeah, Fridays you go and then first Saturdays you go and just put it on your calendar and you go. But one of the things I found, I don't know about you, of course, uh, certainly with the COVID thing, uh, this is true. But even prior to that, it really showed me how life that we live is just not structured to be centered around God. Yeah. It, you know, you. Yeah. in other words, it was always harder than I thought. 
to try to do. There was always something that interfered at some point with uh, getting it getting it done. And it's you know it really reminded me that life is just our our society is just not geared toward devotion and um, you know uh, fidelity to those kind of promises. Yeah, isn't that the truth? I mean, you really have to organize your life. If you're going to, if you're going to do something like this intentionally, or maybe just even something like going to daily mass, you have to organize your life to, to make that happen. And there's probably, that's probably where, you know, the, the virtue comes from in terms of, of having to set those priorities. You know, I, I think there's grace in that and there's grace needed to do that. So. Well, I, I, that's maybe is one of the points of it too, yeah. is why not just say go once, but yeah, I think it requires a discipline. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It requires us to think about reorienting our lives because that then has to become the main thing you do and everything else works around right. it. And we're used, we're not used to that in society. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. not set up to be where we have that kind of, you know, a devotion to a particular uh, religious uh, act. Right. But you know, if Joan of Arc could make the sacraments a priority in her life while she's leading the French army and, and defeating the English. <laughs> I think any of us can, can oh, find a way to do it. Well, and the, the, what a great example. I mean, and what did she tell as, as the listeners may recall, what did she tell, you know, the army, they had to go to, uh, they had to confess and they had to go to mass every day. She, she always was looking to go to confession, you know, practically on a daily basis. Yes. And every time she found, uh, uh a chapel where the Eucharist could be found. She wanted to go. That was truly her priority. There's no question about it. Joan's priority was the adoration of Jesus and the Eucharist, the sacraments and the mass. And Absolutely. That, that everything, everything for her built around it. And lo and behold, she said, imagine this, if you do that, if you make that your priority, then it's amazing the things you can do. The things you can accomplish. That is the great paradox. And it's a wonderful lesson for all. Yeah, we sit, we sit around and go, well, how come better? How come I'm not achieving victory and, yes. and things? And well, because I'm not disciplined. I'm not making sure I do these specific things I'm supposed to do. So it's a great lesson. Yes. Well, now, Walter, we're going to need to turn our, our thoughts and discussion to a somber matter uh, today as, as we look at the, um, the the martyrdom of Joan of Arc in terms of at least her, uh, her imprisonment and her trial. And we have a couple of questions prepared to help our listeners think through this. So why don't you share your question first and I'll share mine. Great. Well, my question really is, have you ever been wrongfully accused of something in a matter of great importance? that truly impacted your life? I mean, it's a pretty straightforward, simple question. Uh, What was that moment like for you? How did you get through it? Because that's what we're going to to find. It's, it's, Joan wasn't just martyred by just, you know, execution. She was, she had to endure, you know, maybe the, the most uh, pernicious, massive uh, character assassination that we've, we've seen in, in, in history. And, and that's a whole death unto itself. It, so it's, as we, it's, we talk about this, if the reader maybe could think about that. Uh-huh. And the reader or the listener, rather. <laughs> hopefully they're reading. Yeah. <laughs> I, I chose a question to go along with that. Have you, but it's, it's from, a, it's from a, a, a different perspective. Have you stood on the sidelines of a great injustice? And how did you respond to it? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really yeah. good question. Would you respond differently today? 
Ooh, that is, wow, that's pretty deep. I think most of us, I say most of us, maybe in a hopeful manner that I'm not the only one, <laughs> that most of us have probably found ourselves sometimes standing on the sideline and not doing what we're, not really standing up for, for justice. Yeah. So if I'm the only one, I'm sorry, but, <laughs> but I think it's probably something many of us have, have sure. had to endure. Sure. Okay. Well, let's look at the 11th stage of the heroic hearts journey. So again, we are almost at the end there. There are 12 stages. We are at the 11th, the penultimate stage. This is the climax of the story. In this stage, the hero is severely tested once more. Of course, the hero has gone through many tests, but now this is often the most severe test and the hero will be purified by a final sacrifice. But of course, we know that sacrifice isn't the end of the story because there is also a resurrection arising to new life, which has been transformed by the hero's suffering. And so the conflicts dividing the hero at the beginning of the story are now beginning to be resolved at this stage. And I don't think we can see a better example of this than our own Easter tradition in the Christian faith when Christ died for our sins and rose three days later in the resurrection. And that's really kind of like the archetype of, of the, um, this stage, the, the martyrdom and resurrection uh, of the right. hero's journey. So that's Joan's true. heroic story is going to follow this path towards martyrdom too. And we've been accompanying her through that in Mark Twain's story, which is so agonizing to read, Walter. I just find myself with tears in my eyes as I'm, you know, turning the pages. Well, um, it's, it's extremely yeah. challenging. I mean, even when you know the story, uh, there are so many ways that you can look at it that in, infuriate you. And, yeah. and, um, and just ask why such an injustice? Why? I know. Why? I, I, yes, it just, you know, the, the, the ensuing centuries have not done anything, I think, to dampen um, or soften the, the pure injustice of it. Well, and there's um, there are people and again, occasionally I say things and I don't have a reference in my mind. It's just because I read things. So I do apologize when that happens. But I, I do know that, you know, I've read references where, you know, people talk about that, that there there is no explanation. You know, humans don't really react or endure what Joan did, unless there's some sort of supernatural yeah. phenomenon uh, behind it, it truly reflects itself as a supernatural phenomenon uh, that she would endure that, that she wouldn't find some way to salvage what she did and yet salvage her life at the same time. Yes. And she did not choose uh, to do that. And so she is one person said, you know, she, she died for France. I mean, her death was really a death for, for France. And ultimately, as she became a saint of the universal church, it had much, you know, bigger ramifications. And, and so I, I, was, I was thinking about, you know, what was the conflict? So what would we say was the conflict from the beginning of her story that gets resolved in this stage? And I think it's, it's what you're alluding to in that, um, you know, on the, on the political, on the political plane, she, of course, um, it accomplishes her goal of um, having the true heir to the French throne crowned and then routing the English and, and doing all of that. But it's, it's more than that, I think, because um, it's, it is about France. And if we remember back to the vagabond that we, you know, read about and discussed in the, in the beginning of this journey, 
he was an allegorical symbol of weary, defeated France. Right. And now I think of him as having received a new heart and a revived spirit because of Joan. Like there is new life infused into France, even though France does not come to her rescue at this point in time. But they well, will, it, you know, France does rise again. The dome of oppression that was hanging over the entire nation is starting to be lifted. Well, true. And I want to, I want to bring something in that's not really in Mark Twain's uh, novel. He doesn't really bring it in. But I think we should at least make mention of it because it's, it's extremely important. Because it still begs the question when people ask about this is, I mean, did it really mean, did that really mean that Jesus had to be on France's side? Does it really mean? <laughs> does it really mean that he was taking political? And, and there, that still really remains that question. I mean, couldn't a Catholic England, which was Catholic at the time, couldn't they have, uh, uh, you know, sort of done the same thing? And I just want to throw it out as food for thought. Uh, it's it's a little bit beyond my capabilities historically and theologically to talk about, but. You know, at the at the time, of course, there was the great Western schism that went on, you know, prior to and, and, and including up through didn't really conclude until really around, you know, the a little bit after Jones uh, death. But there was a, there was another one. And I think some of the uh, Catholic listeners might uh, might be able to, to recall this. But there was a movement at that time toward a concept called collegiality. And and it was a really a sort of a heretical movement to. Uh, really moved to a, a, a type of environment in the church where the Pope was really the the uh, the greatest of equals kind of thing, where mm -hmm. it wasn't really the final word, the rock that we always think of uh, in, in the Catholic Church. You are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And we know that historically it's always been interpreted that the Pope is that that rock and that and that final authority. And there was a movement to sort of make the church more democratic. And to, to make it to where the Pope wasn't really, yeah, he was someone you really pay attention to. But at the end of the day, it would be kind of something that all, you know, we kind of go democratically. With he was all not an authority per se. Yeah, he wasn't, the, he wasn't the final authority. Now, I won't go into more of that because I'll probably get in over, over my head. But that movement was going on at the time. And, uh, but I do think it's significant because the University of Paris that brought in the, the people we're going to be talking about, the judges, uh, and that supported the Burgundian Anglo Alliance were very much in that what we might call a progressive mode of of thinking uh, about that. And Charles, for all the difficulty, for all we've just like tried to dig up anything good we could say about Charles as we go along, um, Charles actually held the more orthodox uh, view. And now we all we know readers or listeners will know that if you read history, Charles you know, wasn't perfect. He did sort of lead eventually toward a sort of a Gaullist interpretation. The church, this is, I'm not talking about sort of a perfect uh, situation, but uh, he, he was on the side of tradition and the University of Paris and those prosecuting Joan were on the progressive side. And I, I say that because it's not really just something myself, Regine Pernaud, uh, one of her first books and great books, Joan of Arc, uh, her story, uh, is, uh, has a, an introduction by, uh, Jeremy Adams, who I believe has, has passed away and Jeremy Adams brings this up and, and Jeremy Adams talks about this, the impact that this had. So I just want to, Amy, ra raise that as not really a center of our topic today, but that it, 
there were other things going on that Joan really wouldn't have been known, but she certainly in her instrumentality uh, as uh, as an instrument of heaven, uh, it does sort of help us think a little bit about why it wasn't so much that Jesus favored France over (laughs) as much as there was also a movement that the victory of Charles would certainly help cement the traditional view against the progressive collegial. So I'll just kind of leave it at that because I'm getting over my head. But I I think that's an important notion too. to, to your point that there's, there are many things going on behind the scenes. Yes, there's so much context, historical context surrounding Joan's story. It is really good to sometimes pause and step back a little bit and and reflect on those those aspects of the story because it, it, they're you know they're so often lost, especially in all of these various interpretations about Joan. You know, they just oh, yeah. just used to further somebody's own agenda. Well, that that's that's the problem because you can say that this interpretation is leaning in, in one direction. And, 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 and it's true. I mean, the, the thing about Joan is she's been, she's been held up as an icon in France f- from, from the um, right, you know, extreme right-wing royalist to the left-wing communist. I mean, e- everyone holds up, oh, Joan is our hero. Jo- of Joan course, is, yes. Jo- Make somebody is- like Joan sort of represent whatever you because I can pick, I can pick some aspect of her life yes, and I can turn it into something that represents my ideology. Um, so yes, it becomes very complex. So we, we don't pretend to know what that answer is, but I throw those out there because I think they're interesting things that the listeners want to, uh, research them a little bit, um, you know, or, or think about them. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a very significant event that happened in the story that Twain is telling. No, I can't handle it, Amy. I know. I just want to get all the sad things out of the way at, in the beginning, I, so we can maybe. I've been talk. talking. I've been trying to avoid talking about this moment. Oh my goodness! Well, you're talking, I'm sure, about the Paladin. Yes. So everyone remembers the Paladin. He has been what a joy we've had in following the Paladin and his adventures. He's been kind of that big. Um, uh, you know, sort of a legend in his own mind. And, and he's been a lot of fun. And remember, Joan said that she was going to make a man out of him, that he performed badly, but she'd make a man out of him. And sadly, the paladin has been vanquished in the battlefield. So the paladin is no longer with us. The paladin has died. So uh, that's an extremely yes. sad moment. But I think we can say that Joan did make a man out of him. Well, I won't read the whole quote, but um, but um, Mark Twain talks about uh, this when he says that uh, the paladin died in the field, died with his harness on, died faithful to his charge, the standard in his hand, died, oh, think of it, with the approving eye of Joan of Arc upon him. So the paladin died as the hero and the legend, and he was... She, she made him into that hero that he always wanted to be, but he wasn't. And he had to pretend to be, and he had to be dishonest and he had to be kind of a fake. She saw that and she didn't reprimand him. She brought him to the front as a standard bearer and said, I'll make a man out of you. 
and she did and he died now when did he die this was when she was captured so this was in the battle of compiègne when we talked about at the end of last session when she was captured so we're at the point now where she's she was captured in that awful moment of betrayal at compiègne and now we're finding out that in that battle the paladin went down and so we're crisscrossing, of course, between fiction and truth. But uh, yeah, so the, the paladin is is a fictional element that Twain gives us to bring the reader, I think, into the story um, because he's somebody who's very much like us. But the truth is that Joan is captured. She is imprisoned. And now she does go through this long and awful ordeal. So yeah, but, well, Mark, with that. Well, Mark, Mark, Twain, Mark Twain takes us pretty quickly from capture to uh i'll, I'll use more uh, anglicized word of ruin that people can because it's almost impossible for me to say in french but <laughs> um but in in ruin where her trial was held he moves pretty quickly it actually was probably seven or eight months it was a fairly extended period of time so what was going on at the time remember that she was captured by a soldier under uh, jean de luxembourg who was um had fealty to the Prince of Burgundy, the powerful Prince of Burgundy. So essentially she fell into Burgundian hands, not English hands. And so, but of course there's an alliance between them. And so now there's a negotiation uh, for ransom uh, because obviously the English want her and the Prince of Burgundy is no, he's a pretty shrewd character. He didn't get to be rich and powerful by being anybody's fool. So they negotiate a ransom. Now, in the meantime, while they're negotiating that, she's held at the tower of Beaurevoir. And there's a famous story of, of Joan. It's very uh, famous. And it would come back to potentially haunt her at her trial. And that was that she tried to escape. It was about a 60-foot drop, and she tried to jump. She jumped out. She didn't try to jump out. She jumped out of the window. Wow. And she landed and basically almost killed herself. Um, she wasn't trying to. She was trying to get away. But she, they, they kind of found her. She's just like lying on the ground and they just had to get her and drag her back up to, um, so she's a pretty fight, pretty oh, tough my word. <laughs> pretty, she's pretty tough. She's no, she's no wallflower. That's pretty but, brave. I imagine she was trying to scale, you know, that 60 foot high tower. I just, I can't even imagine. Oh, I, well, that was a miracle. <laughs> that was a miracle unto itself. Um, was that she she survived she survived that but that was a famous story and it would come back later to haunt her because later they're going to accuse her because they're going to look for everything they can to impugn her character they're going to accuse her of trying to commit suicide right which of which course would be um, a mortal sin in the mortal case. sin yeah and uh, so let's get we'll we'll get on to the trial because this gets to the whole point of the trial uh, anyway so they so they eventually they move her she gets. Um, moved over to uh, uh, Rouen, where the, the trial is going to be uh, handled. And there, there are a number of problems here. There are a number of irregularities. And these would come out 25 years later when they did the exoneration of her name, uh, when the church looked at it and said, wait a minute, something was seriously wrong with this. And we'll talk about that later. But there were a number of irregularities. So she goes to Rouen, and she's going to be put on trial. So let's talk a little bit about uh, why why this is so we've got to look beyond just so why a why a heresy uh, an inquisition why an attempt to uh, impugn her character to assassinate her character and to make her out to be an evil person a witch a heretic okay there there's a lot of context you have to put around this first of all christendom uh, as as a society the really the the 
the church sort of formed, there was separation of church and state in the sense that the, the kings and the, and, the, and the pope were, you know, separate. And sometimes they fought with each other and, and uh, the popes would chastise kings. So there was a certain separation. But, but Catholicism was basically the constitution of the land. It would be very much like saying that if we were in America today and we said we found someone to be a traitor, an un-American traitor, we go, oh, that's we got to do something about that. We got to put them on trial. We got to do that. Well, this would be the same thing in, in the spirit of, of of Christendom. Would be when you come across as a heretic, as as someone that's not following. You're not following. It's not just a oh they were religiously intolerant. That was the whole structure of society. You're basically saying that you are violating the constitution of the land when you do that. So now another important thing to remember about uh, an inquisition is. Uh, even though it seems like a thin line, the church the the church never the church never executes never executed anybody in an inquisition. Um, that was actually the civil authorities. So when you were found guilty in an inquisition, you were handed over to the civil authorities. The civil authorities would execute you. Well, why why would the civil authorities do it? Because you violated the constitution of the land. You're you're a traitor to uh, you. You can't be a heretic and a witch. That that'd be like saying you're a Russian spy. In the United States, during the Cold and, War, uh, during the Cold War, I'm sorry, yeah, during the Cold War. But during the Cold War, you'd say, you know, you're a Russian spy or something like that. So there's a lot of context you have to remember that we're not dealing with, you know, the modern era. We're dealing with Christendom, and so that was another aspect that you have to uh, remember. And what we, what you'll find is when they turn Joan over, they, you know, will declare they're having to turn her over to the civil uh, authorities, and um, so. She she's going in. So that's that's one context. Now, there's another really important context, and that is that her trial itself, the Inquisition trial itself, was purely political. And when I say political, it's, it's you're talking English troops. All in town and surrounding the proceedings, basically with the idea that if you don't come up with the right conclusion, you're going to pay. <laughs> it's it's like there, there's a conclusion that you need to reach. And the mil we have military people here that will make it very unfriendly for you. And, it, you and it's, it's interesting, though, because it is nominally a French court, a French ecclesiastical court, but they're really in, in the, the pocket of the English. Well, they, 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 they are. Now, you know, that's interesting context as well. I mean, remember we said before, as she did her bloodless march, you know, and Mark Twain does mention this, that there's a lot of Anglo anglicized there are many anglicized French in, in the north. So anytime you have an occupied land, some are, some are okay with the occupation. Some are actually on the side of the occupiers. Then there's always that underground movement that is, is for the other way. So you, you have that same sort of, that same sort of mix. And, and within the church, um, you, you could say that there were many who saw the writing on the wall and wanted to make sure that they were in the appropriate position. You pick the winner, right? And it was very clear up until Joan of Arc came. It was very clear, very clear, almost a done deal that the English were going to win. So if you're going to pick the winner, you're going to be on the English side. So they've already kind of cast their lot with, with the English. And that, it, that is uh, uh, very true with regard to the master, the person who's going to oversee the president of the Inquisition, which is going to be Pierre Cochon which every Joan of Arc fan knows is they're all booing and hissing right now. <laughs> the, the evil Pierre Cochon, the, the Bishop of 
uh, Beauvais. Uh, Beauvais. And so um, he is, um, he's really cast his life. He has gains to make. He's, and again, I don't have a reference, you know, sitting at my hand, but he's, he's, he's basically being promised well-being if the English win. I mean, he's going to get a nice position. It's, you know, position, money, the whole thing. So he has his interests completely aligned with the English and he, he needs that to, to, to happen. So, so yes, there's another context that says you have a number who are nominally French, but they're very Anglicized and many of them, okay, we have the progressives from the University of Paris who are already just very progressive and looking for the collegiality. You have those who are Angli- sort of Anglicized French who have, they could see the writing on the wall. They throw their lots in with the, with uh, the English. They have things to gain. So it's, it's not a, a crystal clear, like, Oh, the French are all for Joan of Arc and the, you know, there's this sort of mixed thing going on because England, England didn't just roll into Northern uh, into Normandy uh, a few weeks ago. <laughs> and this has been a hundred years war. They've, they've occupied elements of that land for a long time and they've had great influence. So that's another one. I think another context uh, is that um, procedurally, this was a a lower court that was seeking to come to a different conclusion than a higher ecclesiastical court had already found concerning Joan, and that I'm speaking of the um, when she faced the uh, the um, the court at the University of Poitiers, mm-hmm. and they determined that her mission was from God. Well, there are a couple of things. There's that, Amy, which is exactly true, which is that um, Pierre Cochon was under the Archbishop of Reims, who was with um, Charles. And, and you're exactly right. They had already determined that her mission, she'd already had a mini inquisition in Poitiers. And um, when she started, as the listeners might re- recall, before she got her army. And so this is, like you said, a lower court attempting to overturn a, a higher court, which is very re- irregular. There's another thing, too, though, Amy. And that is that Cochon didn't have authority to, to do this trial anyway. Right. He, he didn't have the jurisdictional authority. He didn't have the jurisdictional authority. He's the Bishop of Beauvais. She was captured in Compiègne. She was, she was captured outside of his jurisdiction. And I, don't, I can't repeat all the rules of the Inquisition, but you had to be tried, uh, I believe, either within the jurisdiction of where you were, you know, of who had that jurisdiction or in your home uh, right. of jurisdiction. And so... Uh, you know, that, so so that was the second thing was that uh, Bishop Cochon didn't have the jurisdictional authority to do it. So it was highly irregular from the get-go, not to mention the political pressure put on everybody by the uh, English, uh, the English army. And, you know, the chief, they brought in the chief inquisitor of France for the trial. And basically what I always read is he, he had to practically be drugged there. He, he didn't. He didn't want any part of this, and but he he was in charge of doing it. Now a lot of them that were stuck there didn't really want anything to do with this, and but they but they they had to. So these are these are some of the um, you know key contexts you have to remember. And then again, they they brought in the the uh, the juror the judges from the University of Paris. Now another irregularity was Joan was not given any counsel. She was just left on her own. So this thing is kind of rotten from beginning. It's, it's egregious on so many levels. And yet Joan comes through with flying colors. I mean, she, she just, it, it's, it's astounding how well she holds her own against, against this kangaroo court. 
I think it is as much or more miraculous than the Battle of Orleans or anything else she did. I mean, the, the battles are certainly one thing, but I think truly that her standing up in trial, you are 17 years old. You do not have the education. She told him, I learned the faith from my mother. She taught me the Our Father, the Hail Mary, and the Creed. She, far from a theologian, she didn't have the education. She didn't have anything. The wisdom, nothing nothing comes to my mind more than that uh, biblical reference to when you stand before them, don't worry about what to say because the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit will tell you yes. what to say. And, and this is a vivid demonstration of that because for several months, Joan absolutely befuddled a group of 60 or so preeminent doctors, academic doctors at the from the University of Paris mm-hmm. who could not, they just couldn't get it done. She had answers for everything that they that they came and they were simple. They were wise, simple answers. So so they 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 get her in the trial and we'll we'll kind of go through. There were several stages. They eventually moved it to a private trial because they were being humiliated. They were being so humiliated. So let's go back to Cochon. Cochon tells the English, don't worry, this thing, we'll have this thing done in no time. I mean, it's, I got we'll have this done by lunch. Yeah. I mean, I got the poor little girl here and I got the, I got the university of Paris. So we'll wrap this up pretty good. It's going to look pretty, put a bow tie on it. He can't get it done. And, and it's a humiliation because the whole public is sort of able to watch and see that Joan is uh, withstanding this, this onslaught. So they move it privately because now it's like, we don't, we got to move where nobody can see what's, what's going on. When you have to move into darkness, you, you know that you're on the, the wrong side. You're on so the defensive, yeah. You're on the defensive. And so they, they, they go in and, and there are, there are a number of very famous now for the, the listeners. Now you can go uh, online and we'll, we'll have to put up uh, some, uh, links. some links. There's a Joan of Arc center out of, uh, I think Albuquerque. And there's a number of others where you can get uh, free, free links to the entire transcript of the trials. So there, and, and actually Regine Pernaud has another book that says Joan of Arc in her own words, which is pulled from the trial transcripts. So here's another interesting thing for, for the listener. Joan of Arc is one of, perhaps I would say, the most documented person in medieval history. We, we know more of absolute, of absolute certainty about Joan of Arc than anyone else in medieval history. Why? Because we have ent- entire trial transcripts that were recorded by notaries. These were notarized court trials where we know exactly what she said and we know exactly what they said. So it's very fascinating. She's, she's really one of the most documented, perhaps the most documented person. In yeah, it's, that's really an astounding um, fact in history. Yeah, it, it's, and you can, you can read them all uh, online. We'll, we'll get the, the uh, links for you. But there are a number of very so you can imagine over the months of her humiliating them that um, that she had a number of really good things to say, and um, one of them that always comes to mind, I think it's one of her most uh, famous, is a great line where a question, and I find this fascinating. Now, those who are not Catholic in our listener base, uh, if you're not Catholic or perhaps you're Protestant. You may not know why this was such 
a devious question. You may not know the significance of the question because you kind of have to look at it from the Catholic view of, of atonement and, and, and salvation and uh, the, do, the doctrines and things of the church. So they ask one of the most devilishly perfect questions to Joan. I mean, this, this, this is where the smart folks from, Par from the University of Paris got together. And you can hardly think of a better question. This is the one that should have ended the trial. This is the one that should have ended it, executed or done. Here you go, Henry VI. You can now, you know, we've destroyed uh, Joan. Um, and, and it didn't. The question was very simple. They asked Joan, they said, are you in a state of grace? Now, for most people say, what is so devilishly perfect about that question? Well, again, if you're not Catholic, you may not understand the full ramification. So in, in the, the Catholic faith, knowing, saying that you know you're in a state of grace and that you know you're going to go to heaven is a, is a grave sin of presumption. I know it's very different. Protestant uh, listeners are going, hey, wait a minute. We don't believe that way. That's, that's very true. But for Catholics, it's very important that we not be presumptuous and say that we know. So that would be a great sin. So what happens is, why was it such a perfect question? Well, if she says, if she tries to go the humble route, and I don't want to be presumptuous, so I'm going to say, well, I'm, I'm not in the state of, you know, I can't say I'm in the state of grace. Well, that invalidates her, her claims, her victories. She's saying that she's not in the state of grace and therefore that invalidates all the things that she she's did. not sent from God. You know, she's not, she's not sent from God. Now what happens if she says, um, I am in a state of grace. Well, now she's guilty of the sin of presumption. So all they needed, they, all they needed was which way are you going to answer? Because we're going to drive it home and nail you either way, either, either you're going to lead us down a path that says you're not really sent from heaven, or you're going to try to defend what you've done through a presumptuous um, uh, statement that you are, you know that you are in a state of grace. And that should have been it. It was a brilliant question. And she gave a very, one of the most famous answers. And she, so her answer, here's the poor 17 year old girl who doesn't know any of this theology. <laughs> she looks at him and she says, if I am, may God keep me there. If I'm not, may God put me there. And it was the most perfect. I, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't know about you, Amy. I wouldn't have thought to say something like that. And one of the notaries, one of the uh, people notarizing wrote, and I, I believe it's, you, I, I'm not sure, but I think you can probably find it if you, if you can look at the, uh, any copies of the original transcripts, but um, he wrote in the side that it was a perfect answer that it is like, cause it was kind of like, this is your death. You're about to die. Over such a simple question, mm -hmm. it was a perfect answer. And so that that was an example of how she absolutely befuddled uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the judges. So th there's still more to go. Um, you know, we have to, uh, we've still got some chapters left to kind of finish out the trial. But that kind of leads us up to, and, and um, oh, one other thing I want to mention real quick, uh, Amy, uh, because we'll, we'll be finishing that up next time because we have to get to the dramatic close of the trial. But just kind of keep in mind that she is befuddling, you know, a, a group, a, an eminent group of academics. And they're, she's in awful conditions. Yes. Uh, they're keeping her in prison, not allowing her 
Okay, so you might say, where's Charles and everybody? Nowhere to be found. No one's coming to rescue her. No one's coming to rescue her, and she's left alone. Now, one thing you might wonder is, being a young 17-year-old, uh, I say girl, woman. I think she's uh, about 19 by this point. Or oh, sorry, sorry, excuse about, me. Yeah. Uh, part, thank you. She, um, Thank you for that correction. When she got to, she was 17 at early on. Two years later, she's 19. So this is when she's 19. So thank you for that correction. Still very young. <laughs> yeah, still, still very young. So she's, uh, I said she was 17, but she's 19. She's 19 years old. And you might wonder, a 19-year-old lady in a, in a prison around a bunch of English soldiers, well, I, Mark Twain doesn't really talk about it, but the uh, wife of the Duke of Bedford, who is the regent for Henry VI in England, so the boy king in England who's supposed to be the one taking over, has a regent, the Duke of Bedford, and his wife, she went to visit Joan in prison. And uh, she had a lot of, what you'll find is that a lot of the women had a lot of empathy and sympathy for Joan. They, they yeah. you know, being like looking at the horrible, like, what are you doing to this young girl you guys are awful and but she told the english soldiers that if they did anything to joan she would have them executed so the duke of bedford's wife stepped in to wow. make sure wow. that none of the english soldiers got any crazy ideas about what what they were going to do she said i'll i'll have your heads off. i'll throw you in the river i'll have you thrown in the river so so she you know it's just a, a very uh very inter interesting story but the um uh, one thing I didn't mention in the context that I, I do think we don't want to get away from is I mentioned all the context about what the trial was about and everything. And, and I kind of, you know, uh, went past one of the most important ones. And that is why, why are they so intent on doing an, an inquisition with Joan? The real target wasn't necessarily Joan herself. The real target was Charles. The, the reason it was so politicized and, and it was such a political trial was, Char what, what did we say last time? Charles got crowned in Reims and won the hearts and minds of all the people. Remember we had that discussion about yes. the Reims and the thousand year history of Reims with the oil of Clovis and the crowning of Clovis and that he, uh, he won the hearts and minds of the people because a true French king is crowned with the oil of Clovis in Reims. Okay, the only way to undo that, that's an undoable thing. I remember they, they, they wanted to do it. They took Henry to Paris and did a crowning. Nobody cared because um, that's not the way you do it. And so what they had to do was discredit Charles. So the best way to do that was to say, ah, the, the, this, one, this, this lady, this hero that took him was a witch and a heretic. And if they could prove she was a witch and a heretic, heretic, she yeah. um, he would be stained with that. He would be stained with that, and that would damage him irreparably, and it would make even people wonder about the validity of the crowning. And so that was really what they were after was to destroy Charles. And they, and, and that's that's why when you when you read the uh, yeah, about the trial, uh, Cochon and the uh, the ones running the, the uh, trial were insistent that you cannot kill Joan of Arc to kill her uh, to kill her without declaring her a heretic would be to make a martyr out of her. It would raise the spirits of the French. It would only enhance Charles. They did everything they could to keep her alive. Um, and in fact, they got afraid. She got sick eating fish one time and uh, she thought she had been poisoned. And, but really they were like, no, we can't let her die. You cannot let her die. After we declare her a heretic and a witch, which we've already predetermined we're going to do, 
uh, then we can go and, and, and kill her. So, the, so for the listeners who aren't familiar with the story, this is, these are all the important backdrops as to why this turned into such a total kangaroo court, which is the nicest way you can put it is a total kangaroo court. So next time, Amy, we'll be talking about um, finishing out this trial, but she's coming up with some, she's coming up with some really great um, answers to people and she didn't even lose her sense of humor she's being kind of tortured i mean she's in this awful environment and um chains yeah in chains but there was uh, and they would try to ask her questions over and over again and they would try to get her to say different things when they would ask so they would come at her and they would ask uh rapid fire questions like quickly asked everybody asked different questions to throw her off and get her confused and then they would they would get an answer and then maybe an hour later circle back and ask it again to see if she would be consistent or inconsistent. She was always, I mean, she would always pick it up. She would always tell them, I've already answered that. Mm -hmm. And there was one of the notaries that, um, you know, made an error like that. And he made some sort of mistake and they'd already asked a question or whatever. And, and uh, he said, well, I'm sorry. She said, she said, that's okay. She said, if it happens again, I'm going to come over and box your ears. (laughs) I mean, she, she still, she, she did reach a point later, which we'll talk about next week where she, she did get worn down. I mean, my goodness, you're going to get finally, you know, beaten down. But she maintained such a strong uh, spirit, such a s- strong character that I, again, have trouble imagining. It, it shocks me to think what would happen if I were in her shoes, because there just seems to be such a big gap between what what I think I would do versus what yes. Well, let's, let's look at kind of what we would do in, in Joan's shoes. So I'm um, going back to our reflective questions. Walter, you had asked, have you ever been wrongfully accused and in a matter of great importance, what was that like and how did you get through it? So was there something that led you to um, ask that question? Well, n- nothing other than, than just thinking about Jones. Uh, I think most all of us have had situations where, we have felt wrongly accused. You know, I can, uh, I came out of the professional corporate world and that's essentially one big Joan of Arc trial you know, when you're in the corporate world sometimes. Uh, for those of you who are coming out or in the corporate world, you kind of probably know what I mean, but uh, it's, it can be a little bit of cloak and dagger a lot of times in the corporate world. And, 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 you know, I, I do know there were occasions where I was put in a bad light by people who I was convinced had a political agenda uh, to, you know, advance. I remember there was, there was a person, I ran a division, he ran a division and he wanted to combine and be the leader of all the divisions. And I wasn't going to have any part of that because I wasn't going to, to work for him. And, you know, it, we, we got into that having to get with the CEO and clarify what's really going on. And you realize that, you know, not everything, uh, I don't want to go into more, you know, into more, but I mean, just to say that what's being said isn't necessarily the, the, the truth. And um, so, yeah, I think most of us probably have been in a situation like that. Yeah. Well, I had asked about um, what do you do when you're on the sidelines watching the injustice? And my question came out of um, reading in Twain's story that the narrator, the Sir Louis de Comte, who we've been, um, talking about all this time he's he's actually one of the the recorders he he um is able to sneak in as a recorder and gets to watch jones trial 
And there are moments when, you know, I wish he would have just spoken up and, and um, defended some aspect of, of Jones' situation. But of course he can't because then he'll be discovered and, you know, he'll well, lose and, the show. Know, in reality, and I know he sort of is a narrator for us in the yeah. story, but in, in reality, though, I think, you know, from my readings, there, there, there were a lot that wanted to say something. Yeah. That, that room was, those it, rooms were filled with people. For sure. Who knew they were watching an oh, injustice, and but they, they were, were scared. To her. Yeah, of course. And they were scared. And I think we, how many times have we seen something happening and, and we just don't act, we, we just don't act. And, you know, there, it can be something at work or in your family, um, but we also see things happening in the political realm. And a lot of times either, you know, maybe it's not just that we lack courage. Maybe, you know, in my case, I'm, I'm just busy or I'm just one person. What difference is it going to make? You know, so or, or we're just, we try to uh, maybe excuse ourselves being practical. Yeah. Well, if I do this, I'm going to suffer extreme consequences. Will I really make a difference? Yeah. I won't make a difference. And all I'll do is hurt my family. Right. And, and those might be valid. I mean, you know, yeah. it'd be very valid uh, when you get in the world of ethics and ethical decision-making, you know, those aren't clear cut things, but I think we can, you know, easily get, get into that. And, you know, the, these, this room was, these rooms were filled with people who many of them knew, uh, but it would risk career and maybe even life. Life. Yeah. And that was something that, you know, people, uh, they just kind of, you know, didn't want to be there, but they just sort of were there. And so you really had sort of a, a small group of people, um, led by Pierre Cochon, who really led the charge in making this. And the rest of them just sort of cowered in fear. Yeah. Um, you know, so, yes. Well, I'm sure uh, this is giving us plenty to think about. And part of this journey is learning to have the courage to uh, respond boldly in situations where, you know, we're, we're facing injustice or, or we're facing these big challenges to our faith. Yes. Yeah, so she, Joan gives us an amazing amount to think about and contemplate in our own lives. Well, Walter, we've got, we've got one more week to read and discuss Joan's story. And so um, we've got to conclude the trial and get to the end. We've been talking do. about it. We're going to do it next time. Yes, we are. And so um, we'll close out Mark Twain's wonderful book, the personal recollections of Joan of Arc by reading Book three, chapters 13 to 24, 13 to 24. That takes us to the end. Very good. All right. Well, it, let's embrace our journeys. We were born for this, Walter. Have a wonderful Thank you, week. Amy. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. So we'll sign off for now, but stick around for Amy reading our closing poem. Thanks for listening. If you want to discover enchantment and adventure with St. Joan and St. Therese, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us at heroic-hearts.com. When I Consider How My Light Is Spent by John Milton When I consider how my light is spent Ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker 
and present my true account, lest he returning chide. Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed, and post o'er land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait.